Amen. Right on. You can turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. And uh, all the T books are together. So if you find one T book, you're right in the right zone. 1 Thessalonians. And we're in chapter 2. And uh, uh, different guests who weren't here as we introduced this series uh, last week. And so just a, a little bit, bring you up to speed on where, where we're at in this uh, Thessalonian letter. Uh, the, the city of Thessalonica was in northern Greece in ancient times, in the prov- Roman province of Macedonia, and it was a major hub for the Roman Empire. It was kind of a gateway into uh, the east, uh, upon, I believe they call it the Ignatian Way. And so a major Roman highway traveled right through that city, a city of a couple hundred thousand people. And uh, uh, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was very clearly led there uh, to that city on his second missionary journey. He had traveled and, and sensed that God was closing certain doors and that he was not supposed to go in certain directions. But here, uh, to head to the province of Macedonia, he had a wide open door and he headed there and he began work in the city of Philippi where he was imprisoned and thrown in jail and then eventually had to leave and he moved on to the city of Thessalonica. And last week, as we looked at chapter one, we were introduced to the relationship that existed between Paul and this church And Paul, as he wrote this letter, and he just opened up to it, he shared his heart of thanksgiving and and prayer for them. And he thanked God for the way that they had received uh, his ministry, for the way that they had responded to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, He he talked about them and their work of faith, their their labor of love, and um, for the steadfastness of their hope in the promise of Jesus Christ second coming. And so, you know, as we looked at chapter one, and as we talk about this church, we know about the Thessalonian church that corporately and and individually, they demonstrated that they were a people chosen by God. You know, the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit's work among them spread far and wide, Paul says. You know, throughout the known world, it's being reported what's going on amongst you. And so, you know, they were, they were a model church. You know, we can look at the Thessalonians and say, not perfect. They, they don't have everything right. They, you know, they're not perfect. But a great example for us to follow, an excellent model for us to, to uh, pattern ourselves after. Now, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, as he went to this city and proclaimed to the gospel to them, was cut short. He was only there for a very short time because he faced uh, some pretty severe opposition from uh, the Jewish popu- population of that city who were against his, his proclamation of the gospels amongst the Gentiles. They didn't, they didn't like that he was preaching Jesus to non-Jewish people. And so uh, opposition rose against him. The opposition rose to the fact that, that Paul was proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. And so... Um, the church and the man, a man by the name of Jason, in whose house the church was a meeting, was arrested. Jason was put in prison. And the church had to put down a f- financial deposit to secure his release. And so when they got Jason out of prison, they, they said, Paul, it's probably time to move on again. Off you go to the next city. And so Paul, after just a short time, him and Silas move on. They've established a church, established a work of God there. And they go on to the city of Berea. 
Now, this whole scene, and the reason why I paint this is uh, for us a little bit, is the whole scenario just provided the gr- a great opportunity uh, for those who opposed Paul uh, to discredit him, to discredit the sincerity of his ministry, uh, to call him, you know, a man who was not sincere, to call him essentially a charlatan. You know, as you, as you get into chapter 2 here, and some of the things we're going to look at, you can hear... Uh, the suspicions and the accusations that were made against Paul as he just talks about his ministry. You know, they, they said, did you know Paul has a police record? Then in Philippi, he was in jail. You know that, right? The guy who planted your church has got a police record. You know, they called him delusional. They said that his ministry was, you know, was, it did not have pure motives. They, they accused him of being a man who deliberately deceived others. Uh, they said that, he, he preached to please people and not to please God. They, they essentially accused him of, of being a mercenary, you know, just a preacher for hire, that he was into this thing to, to get what he could financially take uh, from the church, materi- or materially speaking. They said that he was after a, his own glory in the midst of it. They even accused Paul of being kind of a dictator as he led the church. And so you, you get the picture here as you come to chapter 2 that there is an opposition against Paul that is on the offense in the city of Thessalonica. They're, they're attacking him and they are persecuting and assaulting the ministry that he had established and just launching this verbal foray against him and seeking to divide the church and the work of God. And it was persecution. It was opposition against the work of God in this city. And so as we come to chapter 2 here, what we're going to see is we're not going to get some nasty, uh, you know, verbal retaliation from Paul. But instead, we're going to get some insight into the motivation that lay behind this man and the ministry that he did. Uh, Paul wasn't a sham. He's a faithful servant. Not a snake oil salesman. But he's going to say, I, you know, I cared for you like a nurturing mother cares for a newborn infant. Not a fraudster. No, he's going to say, no, I, I, I cared for you like a concerned father cares for his children. And so as we, you know, as we get into this chapter, we're going to get a look at the heart of the man. Uh, get a look at the heart of this man, Paul, the pastor. And it, it's, a cha- it's challenging. You read this and I'm like, man, I read this. I'm like, I want to be a better pastor. You, you read this and... We want to be better servants of the Lord. We, we all have ministry wherever he's placed us in our, in our workplace. You know, you, you, you work at the mill or you, you work in the schools or you run a business or you, you have a ministry that God has given you called to be an ambassador of Christ. You have a home where he has placed you. Maybe where you're raising children and you're pastoring and parenting them. He's strategically placed you in your neighborhood or in, in our church, for that matter, we, we all have a ministry, and Paul is going to just share with us some of the motivations that he personally had as he did the work of the ministry. And, it, and it's good for all of us. It's good for us to just see his heart and then go, wow, that's, that's, that's good. I want to be like that. So let's check it out. Verse 1. He says this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much 
conflict. Now again, you know, just prior to his arrival amongst the Thessalonians, Paul ministered in the city of Philippi. And uh, there he did some prison time. Him and his buddy Silas. It's true, they did have a prison record. But that was not the whole story. The whole story sounds kind of more like this. A demon-possessed girl was set free. She found liberty in Jesus Christ. Her employers were mad because they used her as a fortune teller. And so along with the crowd, they seized Paul. They dragged him into the marketplace. I was thinking about that because, you know, sometimes we talk about having ministry in the marketplace. Paul was dragged into the marketplace. And there, the scripture tells us in Acts chapter 16 that they ripped off his clothes. They took rods and they beat him with, with many blows, inflicting him. And, of course, all of it was an illegal action because Paul was a, a Roman citizen. And then he was thrown in prison and his feet were put in stocks. And so... Yes, he had a prison record, but not quite the whole story. You know, the scriptures tell us that over his ministry, Paul received the 40 lashes minus one uh, from the Jews five different times. That, to me, that's just crazy. Three times, the scripture says, the man was beaten with rods. You know, and there it is in that Philippian prison that Paul and Silas go and what do they do? They pray and they sing hymns to God their Savior. They pray and they sing hymns to the Lord of heaven. And so when Paul left Philippi by force and arrived amongst the Thessalonians, if during those first few weeks of ministry that he was there, if he had just happened to take off his shirt, they would have seen upon his body, you know, uh, the marks of a man who paid the price for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, during those first few weeks, Paul's definitely sleeping on his stomach. I don't, I don't know how else to say. He was there. And, you know, that's why, to me, it's simply a God thing that we read in verse 2 that he says this. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You know, Paul wasn't a quitter. There's no quitting this man. Pack it in, stop, abandon are not verbs that you could use to describe the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Instead, with boldness and while still healing from the experience in Philippi, he declared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in this Gentile city. The Lord Jesus crucified for our sins, who gave his life on the cross, who was buried in a tomb and who three days later was raised from the dead and was declared with power to be the son of God. The risen Jesus who gave his life in our place as a substitution for our sin so that we might be made righteous before our God. Now, you know, I just think about Paul. I think, how, how does that work? You know, beaten with rods, imprisoned, forced to leave the city with a body still healing from the beating. And then just to move right on to the next spot, move into the next city, and all over again, begin proclaiming the gospel of God. What motivated that man? What had gripped his heart? What had taken hold of his thinking? Was it the things he was being accused of? Charlatan, insincere, mercenary, prison record, da-da-da-da-da. 
Was that what motivated him? I don't think so. Look at the direction of Paul's boldness in verse 2. What was the object of his confidence? Was he confident in himself? Had had he mustered up enough self-esteem to just go on? Was he confident in his past? You know, if I had a past like Paul and a Philippian, it'd be a source of anxiety to me going to the next city. What was the object of Paul's gospel confidence? And he tells us it was God. We were confident in our God. So we proclaim the gospel to you. Paul was bold because his courage was in God and not in himself. Paul was bold because his hope was not in the results that he could produce, but his hope was in the God whom he served. And it's that kind of confidence that will lead you to the place of prayer and the place of praise when you are in the enemy's deepest, darkest prison that he could set you in. When you're locked in the inner depths of the enemy's prison, it's that confidence in God that leads you to the place of prayer and to praise. And so, you know, as you seek to serve God, you know, you can be confident. I can be confident even in the face of conflict. Why? Because the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will never leave you or forsake you. And as we've been seeing as we've been getting into this uh, series in Thessalonians, see, see, following God is not about the promise of ease, but it is about the promise of his presence. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He, said, he goes on in verse 3. He says this. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. Not to please man. But to please God who tests our heart. And so, you know, Paul just lets us know, look, the gospel is not my invention. It's not my story. It's, it's not the result of some angelic vision or like, you know, some pair of golden glasses that I've been given. It's not fiction. It's not falsehood. It's something that is approved by God and has been entrusted to me. A gift given not to please people, but a gift given so that we might please God. You, know, you and I, we've been entrusted with the gospel. Our church has been entrusted with the gospel and it's a gift we've been given not so that we could please people but so that we could please God. Us proclaiming the gospel is not about pleasing men it's about pleasing God. And Paul says he reveals to us that God has actually given his people the gospel not only to save us but to actually test our own hearts. To me that's interesting I just never saw it that way. And what that reveals to us is that, you know, you can, you can preach the right message and you can have the wrong motives. You know, you, you, you might ask, you know, do motives really matter as long as the gospel is preached? And we know what it says elsewhere in scripture, but yes, motives matter. They matter to God. You know, people use the gospel for all sorts of reasons. The accusations of uh, of those who were accusing Paul, they're true. They were true about others, not about Paul. They're, they're true about some in our day. You know, some uh, preach the gospel uh, because their own hearts are covetous and they use the gospel as a means to make money. 
You know, some speak the gospel for the approval of men. Some with intention preach a gospel that has error. Others preach the gospel with impure motives and they do it with, a, with the purpose to deceive and to gain power over people. And, and they work their way into the lives of weak-willed people. And so having proper motivation in the appeal of the gospel, it matters. It matters. Why does it matter? Because God tests our hearts. God knows what lays behind our motivations. He uses the gospel as a means to test the hearts of his people. And so Paul says in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext of greed. God is our witness. You know, salvation, when we talk about salvation and someone being born again and, and turning in repentance from sin and turning in faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ, that work of salvation where a person was once dead and they're now made alive, that is a miracle. It is a miracle work of God. Salvation is not the result of a, a clever argument. Salvation is never the result of some subtle presentation, you know, or, or, or the result of flattery or anything. Salvation, as we saw last week, begins with God. He chose his people before the foundations of the earth uh, were laid. Salvation begins with God. And it is the result of the proclamation of his word and his gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit upon a heart. Not the result of flattery. And, and Paul's accusers made all sorts of accusations against his, mo you know, his motives. He's nothing but a cheap peddler. Looking to make a buck and to use the word of God to work his way into your wallet. And, and Paul's response, his defense here was to tell his readers that, that he, knew, he knew that he, he told the truth. And how, how could, you know, Paul answer so clearly and reply that it, his game was not flattery and his game was not greed? Because Paul understood that the source of our motivation matters. It matters to God because God is a witness viewing these things. You know, consider for a moment the, the, the ministry of Jesus. You know, you go through the Gospels and, and reading the words of Jesus is so refreshing how he deals with people. Jesus never resorted to flattery to work his way into people's hearts and minds. Uh, you know, the Gospel accounts where Jesus is talking to people just, just show us that he was, he was always perfectly uh, the balance between grace and truth. Uh, to the hurting Jesus delivered truth and he seasoned it with grace and it was just, it pierced their hearts with his love. He met them right where they were at. To the hard-hearted religious Pharisee who was stubborn and, and religious in his thinking and fighting against God, you know, Jesus spoke truth without apology and he cut through all the religious bull. See, flattery was not what Jesus used. And flattery reveals a double heart. In fact, it's been said that flattery is just another form of lying. Where you choose to manipulate someone rather than communicate with them. And flattery is the way that greedy people gain power and control over others. And Jesus' ministry did not resort to flattery. 
And the ministry of Paul, for that matter, did not resort to flattery. And true gospel proclamation uh, deals honestly with sin, deals honestly with the judgment of God against sin, and it leaves the hearer to, to wrestle with God. It's truth spoken in love, whereby the hearer, you know, can choose. Shake my fist at God, or shoot the messenger, or I surrender my heart to the love of God that's extended to me through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul came to that city and, and he presented to them the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and he trusted God to do his work. No cheap tricks. You know, that, that's a great pattern for us, isn't it? We don't want to resort to cheap tricks. We just love people, proclaim the truth of the gospel and the results lie in God's hands. Not flattery, not motivated by greed. Verse six, he says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or for others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so, you know, Paul, again, again here, he says, yeah, you could accuse me of wanting glory, but I'm not concerned about my personal glory. His personal satisfaction in ministry came from Jesus. Not from the praise of people. The, the reason why he could minister from that place was that, you know, his need for acceptance, his need for finding value in his life was not found in other people. It was found in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he did not spend his life trying to find approval from man because he found approval from God in the righteousness of the son. He understand, he understood his identity in Jesus Christ. And he says, I look, I, I, I could have made demands. I'm an apostle. I could have made demands, but I didn't come into your midst to get something. I came to your city to give something, not to take from you, to, to be a faithful servant of the Lord. He says in verse seven, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. You know, not only could Paul say to the church, you know, whatever the accusations have been against me, whatever they are, I've been a faithful servant. But he could also say, he could also compare his, his ministry to this picture of a gentle mother nursing her children. You know, I was thinking about when my kids were born, especially the first one, you know, I wanted to be just the real diligent dad and get up, you know, crying baby, get up in the night with my wife and, you know, but dads and wives and moms in the room, we know the reality of that picture, okay? Men have not been gifted by God to help in that situation. And so, you know, why should the two of you suffer when one could sleep? <laughs> it didn't last long, and my wife was gracious to me. You know, uh, she, she learned to excuse me. And I, and I graciously took that. You know, the reality is this, and men and women know this. It's, it's something that we shouldn't apologize for, but God has equipped mom with a certain, uh, gent moms with a certain gentle, nurturing nature that knows how to care for children. You know, dads, we could be a little bit more rough and gruff. We don't seem to have that same nurturing nature. Now look what Paul says about it in verse 8. So he says, so being affectionately desirous for you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. He's talking about the nurturing heart of a mother that, that he had as he cared for these people. He says, my desire towards you was affectionate. I, I, I loved you. I, I, I was willing to share with you not just the gospel, but my life. My life. You know, it's not easy to care for people with that kind of compassion. When Moses was leading the, the children of Israel through the desert, in a time of frustration, Numbers chapter 11 tells us that he cried out to God and he said to God, I didn't conceive these people. Who am I, their mother, that I should nurse them and carry them through the desert? To the land that you swore to their fathers? What position have you put me in, God? Moses said. And you know, it was just, it's so easy to complain to the Lord about God's people, isn't it? I mean, we know that. For those of you who hung out around church for a while, it's easy to take shots at the church. And I think that's a dangerous thing. Because if you take shots at my bride, I'll come and deal with you. And the church is the Lord Jesus Christ's bride. And we should be cautious about the shots that we take. It's easy to complain about God's people. You know, when, when you are doing the work of ministry with your kids or in your workplace or where, when you are working, you know, and just trying to diligently be an ambassador for Christ in this community, it's, it's, it's easy to complain and to get frustrated with those whom you're trying to serve. And Paul said, look, you know, I didn't complain. I just sought to love you like a mom loves her nursing baby. That's that's what I sought to do. It's a great example to us. He says in verse 9, for, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel, proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know, of course, Paul is the example where we take this idea of tent making from. We call it tent making ministry, you know, being bivocational. Paul labored and he supported himself uh, so as not to be a burden on the people of God. And you know, whereas he's just been comparing his, his ministry to that of a mother, in a moment here he's going to do the switch and he's also going to say, and I was like a father. And he's going to tie the idea of tent making to that. You know, uh, and it's this picture, the father, one of his roles is, is to support his family, to work and support his family. Now, the book of Philippians tells us that Paul was receiving financial support from, from them. But he came to Thess Thessalonica and, and he worked with his hands. He was tent making and he was paying his way. And so to accuse him of using the ministry for, for his own profit was an argument that just didn't make sense. It didn't add up. He says, remember, brothers, uh, you know, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You know, Paul could say 
about his conduct amongst the Thessalonians that he was holy and he was righteous and he was blameless. Those are, those are strong statements. He was careful to fulfill his duties. He practiced integrity. Is that thing doing funky things back there? Distracting you all? He was careful to fulfill his duties. He practiced integrity in his character. He practiced integrity in his behavior. When people, he, he practiced integrity. Literally, he is saying, you could find no blame in my ministry. It, it, it's an incredible example that Paul sets for us. And dads, this is, you know, I would say, dads, this is how Paul lived as a minister of the gospel. And how we men even are to live uh, before our children as God-fearing dads. Where we challenge our children to walk in a manner worthy of God. You know, dads not only work to su support the family, but then we're called to, to seek to teach our children and to model for them the good example of what it is to follow the Lord. Paul says here, like a dad, I spoke a word of encouragement. I was just thinking for dads, it's easy to always be the, the heavy in the house, the one who's scolding, the one who's correcting, the one who is bringing discipline. And, and moms can be so much better at that nurturing nature with a child, caring and being gentle and being loving. And dads can, you know, bring the heat. But dads, we're to speak words of encouragement to our children. To encourage them to go on with the Lord. And you know, I find that I have to be very intentional about that with my kids. Because sometimes you, you just fall into certain roles and I have to be intentional and encourage them in the Lord. Speak those words of encouragement. And dads have that ability when they encourage their kids to not just make them feel better, but to do better. And so as a father to the church, you know, Paul charged the church to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which carries this idea of this. This is what he was doing. He was sharing with them his own personal experience and giving a personal witness. So look at this. When this happens to your back, you keep going. When he's thrown in prison, you praise God. He's a wonderful witness to us of serving the Lord. Um, a faithful servant, uh, uh, the picture of a nurturing mother, an encouraging father. And now he begins to change gears, not going to defend himself any longer. Verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You know, Paul truly was thankful for this church and for the, the ministry that he had amongst them. In fact, he opened this letter. If you went back to the start of chapter one, he just started by, by thanking God with a prayer of thanksgiving for these people. And part of his thankfulness, he tells us here, is the way that they received the word of God. You know, it was not easy to be a Christian in Thessalonica. As this chapter closes, we're, we're going we're gonna to get more of a sense that this crew really was enduring suffering and persecution for following Jesus Christ. And yet, they, they were full of joy. And as an encouragement to them, Paul's going to share with them three things that they possessed. And the first one is this. He says, 
you receive the word of God. Not as the word of men, but as it truly is the word of God. See the church of Jesus Christ is founded upon his word. The same word of God that brings us the gospel message and leads to our salvation also enables us to, to live for God in the midst of suffering and in the midst of persecution and in the midst of everyday life. And one of the thes- one of the things that Thessalonian church really had going for them was the attitude that they carried towards God's word. They didn't receive it as the word of men. They received it as it truly is the word of God. See, we must never treat this and read this like any other book. It's not just another book. The Bible is different in its origin. It's, it's different in its content. The Bible is the word of God. All scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's written by men, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. David said this in Psalm 19. I love this. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. You know, you've heard me say many times, the written word leads us to the living word, Jesus Christ. And so how we handle the scripture, how we give priority to God's word in our daily lives reveals what we actually think about Jesus. I mean, put two and two together. Jesus Christ is the living word. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So, you know, the written word And Jesus, the living word, in essence, they are the same. Both Jesus and the word of God are called bread. They're called light. They're called truth. You know, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived a a child and gave birth to Jesus. And the scripture tells us the same Holy Spirit came upon men and he inspired them to write the written word. The scripture tells us that Jesus is the eternal son of God. And the scripture also tells us that it itself is also the eternal word of God and that it will live forever like Christ does. And Jesus declared to the crowds, he said, man doesn't live on bread alone. You have to get that thinking out of your mind. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you desire the word of God? as much as you desire your daily bread? Do you desire it more than you desire food? You know, Psalm 119 and Psalm 119 tells us that this is more valuable than gold. That'll mess with your value system. That's God's economy. More valuable than gold. More valuable than money. 
And the Thessalonian church had a true appreciation of the word of God and they placed the right value on his word, but it didn't stop there. Not only did they appreciate it, they, they accepted it. They put it to work in their lives. They appropriate it. You know, they didn't simply listen uh, with their ear to the word of God. They also heard with their hearts and they acted on the things that they were taught. You know, they took the word of God and they wrestled it to the, into the inner parts of their life. You know, we know that you can listen, but not hear. If you're married, you know your spouse can listen and not hear. You know, wives know that men listen and they don't hear. You're listening to me. Maybe you're not hearing a thing, you know. Yes. Yes, dear. What did I just say? Um, you know, in marriage, communication is such a vital skill, isn't it? It's just, I mean, that's what marriage comes down to. To communicating and learning to speak and learning to hear what the other person is saying. God is speaking. God is speaking. And the question is, are we his people listening? And sometimes, you know, we need our ears tuned. We get out of, you know, get out the Holy Spirit Q-tips and clean the ears. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, he said, take heed how you hear. Take heed how you hear. You know, many churches have, you know, substituted the word of God for entertainment. They've substituted the word of God for political correctness or cultural sensitivity. And then, you know, when their people actually hear the word of God, they don't desire it or they don't know what to do with it. You know, the scripture tells us that you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to start to get the food of God's word into your mouth and then you begin to taste that it's good and you develop an appetite for it. Taste and see that God is good. This church appreciated the word. They, they accepted it and they took it and they applied it to their life. And you know, that's a great discussion. You know, how does the word of God move from just being appreciated and accepted to being something that moves its way into my heart? It's something that can be applied to my life and then direct how I live. How do you move it that 18 inches from your head into your heart? Well, Joshua was given an instruction on how to do that. When the Lord spoke to him as he took over leading the people of Israel after Moses had passed away. And in Joshua one eight, it says this, this book of the law, the Lord said to Moses, to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it, Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. When the Lord told Joshua to meditate on the word of God, the idea is this, it expresses this. You let it roll around in your mouth. You chew it. You, you, you digest it. And the means by which the word of God is chewed and digested is this by meditation. We meditate on God's word. And just like you, you know, you, you chew your food and it's digested for physical life to move the word of God into your heart. The, the process of digestion is meditation, but biblical meditation is different 
from what we might know as meditation in this culture. What is what I would call Eastern meditation. You know, whereas Eastern meditation has this idea maybe of emptying yourself. Jesus warned that emptying yourself is actually dangerous. That when a house is swept clean, you leave room for things to come in and you can't necessarily control what that is. Biblical meditation is different. Biblical meditation is not empty yourself, but it's this fill yourself. Fill your mind with the word of God and it will transform you. In Romans, Paul said this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. See the Thessalonians applied the word. They accepted the word. They, 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 they accepted the word and they went to applying it to their lives and it transformed them. See the word of God will teach you the will of God. And so, you know, this church that was in the midst of, of, of suffering and persecution, uh, whatever they had going on, they had this, the Bible, and it was a source of joy and it was a source of motivation. It was a source that kept them trucking and it revealed to them the will of God and it will do the same for us. He says in verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God, of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So not only did this, this church become imitators of Jesus, not only did they imitate and pattern themselves after Paul, they also unbeknownst to them became imitators of the churches in Judea where, where Jewish believers were experiencing a suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's encouragement to them was this. To say, look, your experience is not isolated. You know, others have suffered before you. Other, others have, have suffered with you. You know, I think that one of the great benefits of being a part of the body of Christ and the lo local church is that in times of difficulty, we can encourage one another. We discover, hey, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. You know, when Elijah ran in fear from the threats against his life and he ran for 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness and he isolated himself, you recall what happened to his own heart? Discouragement set in. I'm the only one. And when you are lonely, you are vulnerable to the devil's attacks. You are vulnerable to... Uh, discouragement. Isolation is the breeding ground for discouragement in the Christian life. We need one another. We need one another. You know, it's important that we do this. There's a lot of different dynamics God is working by his spirit in this room. It's not simply the proclamation of the word. It's not simply worship. You know, there's lots of things that God is doing by his spirit amongst his people. You know, you know, 
I look around this room and I consider the fellowship that we have with one with another and the relationships that we have as, as vital to my life in Christ. I, I consider it vital to the health of this church. You know, yeah, coffee break goes a little long sometimes. It's with design. Okay, I know I'm not good at watching a watch, but sometimes I like to just watch you fellowship. It's with design. You know, sometimes, you know, I think this, in God's eyes, you know, you know, if you're a parent, as a parent, I love watching my kids just get along. I love when I don't have to intervene and say, hey, do this, do that. I love it when my two kids or three kids, whatever combo or variation it is, sit down and play with one another or take on some task or you hear them laughing in their room or enjoying one another's uh, company. And it's not forced and it's not a parent interfering. You know, someone from our church recently said to me, I, I, I hope you don't mind, but me and so-and-so are getting together and we're talking about this stuff. And, and I appreciate what they were asking because, you know, in, in terms of me being the pastor of the church, they want to make sure things were cool. But I, I said, you know, I love that. I, it's like a parent knowing that their kids are hanging out. Because they want to be together, not because anybody's forcing them. We need the body of Christ. We need one another. So some things this church has got going on for them in Thessalonica, the word of God. They've got one another. And then Paul leads us to the next thought, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You know, when you read any of the writings of Paul and you read in Acts about the missionary journeys and all that stuff, you... you you rare, I don't know if you get the sense anywhere that Paul actually got to stay where he was as long as he had hoped, you know. He was always getting kicked out of town. He was always getting beats. Uh, he's always getting moved on by the Lord. And he says to this church, look, I wanted to stay in your midst longer. In fact, I've been wanting to return. I I've been wanting to, to come back to you. And, and he says at this time, you know, uh, Satan has been hindering me from coming to Thessalonica. Now let's, let's just for a moment, hypothetically consider that Paul didn't face that opposition from Satan. Remove the opposition and he gets to go back. He gets to go back and see these people. Well, if he had not faced that opposition, the result would be this. We wouldn't be teaching through the book of First Thessalonians this morning. See, opposition from Satan resulted in Paul writing this letter, and not only this one, which was his, probably his first, but it became uh, the pattern that he had for communicating with all the churches that he planted, and the result is, is that, uh, you know, much of our New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. See, God was at work in the midst of the opposition. God was at work 
uh, unfolding his plan for his church in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of even Satan's resistance. And God brought about a work that Paul never could have dreamed up or imagined in his entire life. And you know, it just makes you think, I I wonder what God is looking to work out in your life and in your future and the opposition that you're facing. You know, that's why in, in, in times of trouble, it's necessary that God's people just adjust their thinking, uh, adjust their vision. In times of, of suffering and persecution and wondering why this opposition, that you have to set your eyes on a long-term view of things. You set your eyes on the finish line. What God is going to do in the future based on the steps that are taken today. See, Paul lived with this, this anticipation that Jesus Christ could return at any time and reward him for his faithful ministry. And that when Jesus uh, came, that the Thessalonian church would also be brought into the glory of God. And I would say this, you know, whatever you have going on today, it will be worth it. When we see Jesus, I think there's some old hymn that goes something like that. I don't know it, but there's an old hymn. It will be worth it when we see his face. And so today we need to be faithful. Don't give up. Take hold of the resources that God has put in your hands that he has blessed you with. Check the motivation of your heart. You have the word. You have the church family. You have the hope of Christ's return. Don't give up. Let's pray.